Good morning, everyone. Um, so today's gospel, or it's gospel, today's homily is sponsored by the usual people. We have regular sponsors here, so Pope Benedict and uh, Baltazar are the sponsors for today's homily. One image for Baltazar I don't want to dwell on, but it's just so good. I just want you to just hear it and we'll move on. There's a book we have in our bookstore. People ask me, they say, Father Brian, if I wanted to learn, if I wanted to get into Baltazar, what should I read? Um, if there's one book you, that you should read from Balthazar, there's a collection of his sermons. It's called You Crown the Year with Your Goodness. It's on our bookshelf. It is, that is one of the books in my life that has driven me to my knees more than almost any book I've ever read. His homilies are so beautiful. They just, and by the way, when you read it, you'll be like, oh, Father Brian has never had an original thought in his entire life. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't. Everything I tell you is just stolen from people way better than me. But Balthazar has this image on his sermon on the Trinity, and he says this. He says, if you imagine a prism, and you have on one side of that prism, you have the pure white light, and when the prism, when the light enters it, it separates the light into a spectrum of colors. And Balthazar says... The whole year of a Christian liturgical cycle, so Advent, through the Passion, through ordinary time, all the great feasts, that what it is, it's like God, it's today's feast is the white light. The Trinity is the source of all mystery, of all beauty, of all goodness and truth. But when it comes into this world, it's like a prism, and the one mystery manifests itself and the spectrum of colors throughout the year. I love that. Everything we know about God, every mystery we have, it all emanates from today's feast. From the greatest mystery of all mysteries, which is the uncreated Trinity. So today I hope to take you deep. I hope today will drive you to your knees. And today what I want to talk to you about is with God, you're going to end up doing one of two things. You have two options before the living, ineffable, eternal God. Either you will bow and you will fall on your knees before the mystery that is above us, or you will try to domesticate God and you will make him into your image. And I think as humans, we're going to end up doing one of those two things. But first, I want to talk to you about pigs. Come on, it's kind of funny. Um, this is not stolen. This is original. <laughs> so when, I, when we started the Companions of Christ, we got a house on Capitol Hill. And if you've ever lived in Capitol Hill, it's a very different neighborhood than uh, Harvard Park is. Very different. And Capitol Hill, one of the things that I said when we lived up there, is anything goes on Cap Hill. If you walk on Cap Hill, you know, if people are like half naked, if they have hair in like way crazy styles, um, if people are walking around do, like just doing drugs in broad daylight, nobody bats an eye. 
the, but we had four seminarians, particularly good-looking guys, I will say. We're the only people who got a double look in Capitol Hill. Uh, and so if people were weirded out, they're like, is that a Roman collar? I was at a coffee shop one time, and that week, there was a visiting uh, Dominican monk, and he had his full Dominican habit on, and he had been in the same coffee shop as I came to like an hour later, and the barista just was like, what is going on? <laughs> I was like, we're taking over. <laughs> but anyway, the only time that I was ever really shocked in Cap Hill was there was one guy who had this giant pet pig, right? It was the strangest thing ever, but no one else seemed to notice. I was like, are you guys seeing this? But he would walk around and he had this giant pig on a leash. And I was like, well, I guess that's Cap Hill. Um, Today, I want to use that image as an image for the way that we domesticate God. And so, in Cap Hill, it should have looked weird. It should, people should look around and say, oh my gosh, there's a guy walking this giant pig. And what I think might have been going on with him is that sometimes we want to domesticate things that are exotic. We want to take something that is wild and different and we want to make it understandable and we want to have mastery over it. It's kind of a normal human thing. And today with that first option, the first thing I want to talk about is I really want you to go home this week and today and during this Mass and I want you to realize that your image of God is likely something that you have made domestic. You have brought, and I do this all the time, we have brought the greatest of all mysteries, the eternal, unvisible beauty of God. We have dumbed down and domesticated, and we've tried to put it on a leash and make it ordinary. We have to be careful of that. In the story of the golden calf, Exodus 32, there's a really cool thing that happens there. So God, God gives these commandments, right? In Exodus 20, you get the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 20, God gives two commandments where he says, in the first one he says, you cannot make an image of God. And then you're not allowed to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The reason for this, brothers and sisters, is that when we try to make an image of God or we try to name him, we inevitably make him something less than he actually is. And we're going to come back to this, but going all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27... God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, after the likeness of the Holy Trinity. By the way, in that verse, Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man after our image. And Christians look back at that as the first hint of God revealing that he is Trinity. Okay, but back to Exodus. So what happens in Exodus is you have those two commandments and they're meant to make us bow before the mystery. To bow before that mystery. But in that, sorry, I skipped the Genesis one. In Genesis 1.26, 
what happens is God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. If you do not allow God to make you in his image and likeness, you will start making God in your image and likeness. We'll come back to that. Okay, but in Exodus, that happens. And then in chapter 32, you get the golden calf. And what happens with the golden calf is there's two ways that you can commit idolatry. Two ways to commit idolatry. The first one is the obvious one that we all know about, which is to worship a false god. Right? And in our lives, we know this, in the modern world, our gods might not be Zeus or Jupiter or Hermes or whoever. Our gods are power, sex, and money. And we look to those things to give meaning, security, and a firm foundation to our lives. So that's the first way you can worship a false god. The second way you can commit idolatry, though, is by worshiping the true God in a false way. You can worship, a way of committing idolatry is to worship the true God in a false way. So in Exodus 32, your favorite chapter in mine, what happens, right? Aaron, Moses is gone. He's on, the, he's on Mount Horeb. And the Israelites say, you know, we don't know where Moses has gone. And they get fearful, and they're looking for something to trust in. And so Aaron, he receives all this gold from the people, and he fashioned a molten calf. And said, these are your gods, O Egypt, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now that might sound right there like, okay, this is type number one. Worship of a false god. But it's tricky. There's a debate about this. It goes on in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. And in the Hebrew there, Aaron is using the name of God himself. And so probably more likely what happens with the golden calf is that Aaron and the Jews are trying to worship the true God in a false way. And I just want you to hang on to this for a second. I think this happens all the time. You and I, it's so easy to say, you know what, Jesus, I think you're probably a lot like me. One way we can have a false image of you, Jesus, right, is that I have a hard time forgiving people. And so I can't believe that you would actually forgive me. Lord, I'm kind of vindictive, and I'm jealous, and I I imagine you must be just like that. Or maybe I have the opposite attitude, and I say, you know, Jesus, I'm a really laid-back kind of guy. Do your thing as long as you're, you're, you know, nice to other people. No big deal. 
And in this way, we put God on a leash. And we try to make him in our image, in our likeness. Brothers and sisters, you're not God. You're not God. You are not God. And that frees you when you realize it. It'll free you to bend your knee to something greater. So how do we do this? How do we get to a place where we can, instead of making God in our image and likeness, how do we fall on our knees before the Holy Trinity? How do we enter into that mystery? Uh, So as you know, it's wedding season. Weddings are picking back up again, despite all of my admonitions against them. They keep happening. I have one today. Uh, I have one yesterday, too. Um, One of our staff members, Patrick, who I do the podcast with, him and his wife were one of our COVID weddings last year. And I want to talk about them uh, because I I use the same image at their wedding. But Pope Benedict uses weddings to help us understand baptisms, and hopefully this is all going to tie together. But your baptism was the most important day of your life. The most important thing that has ever happened to you or ever will happen to you is the day you were baptized. And the day you were baptized, you were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And every time you walk into this church, the baptismal font is at the back for a reason. It's the entrance to the Christian life. And what happens at our baptismal font is eight sides, because the day you were baptized, you were baptized into what the early Christians called the eighth day, which is the new creation. The first creation was made in seven days, and on Easter Sunday, God started the new world. And that's why our baptismal font has eight sides. And every time you come into this church, you dip your fingers into the moment you were brought into the family of God, into the water of your baptism, and you cross yourself in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That reality, brothers and sisters, This is one of the ways the church helps us, Jesus, Father, Son, Spirit. This is one of the ways the church helps us to bow before the mystery of God's identity. So Pope Benedict wants us to understand our baptism in relation to marriage. And so what happened at Patrick and Stephanie's wedding when you start a wedding, everyone's happy, and it's a great mood, and um, Stephanie and Patrick were here, and, and the bridesmaids were in this first pew, and uh, I read this quote from Pope Benedict, and, and we're talking about today at that wedding, a bride loses her name, right? In our culture, that's the common kind of norm is that a bride on her wedding day loses her maiden name and takes on her husband's name. And so Benedict reflects on this. He says this. He says, In adopting her husband's name, the wife at the same time surrenders her own name. 
And I started my homily and I said, you know, Stephanie today, after today's Mass, she will no longer be a Giltner. And Stephanie immediately started crying. And her sisters were right here giving me the evil eye. <laughs> and they were like, and one of them even was like, Father Brian, and I was like, hold your tongue. <laughs> but it, it, gets, it gets good, so hang on to it. So in adopting her husband's name, the wife at the same time surrenders her own name. She leaves behind what is hers and belongs henceforth no longer to herself. This surrender of the old is for both spouses the condition of the new that is opening to them. Listen to that again. I love that line. This surrender of the old, right? Stephanie leaving behind her maiden name, right? The surrender of the old is for both spouses, the condition of the new that is opening to them. Behind this more external act of renouncing one's name, of losing one's independence, is the deeper mystery of life and death that is love itself. I love that. The deeper mystery of life and death that is love itself. Benedict goes on, and here's what he's saying. The day you're married, you have to die. And the, the bride leaving behind her name is a symbol that her old life is in some sense now behind her. And the same with the groom, and they're entering into the beautiful new relationship, that new state of life. And Benedict goes on and he says, this is how you and I are to understand baptism. The day that you were baptized, just like the bride takes on a name, so the church born at the baptismal font takes on the name of Christ. Right, Jesus, the day I was baptized, I took on the name of being a Christian. And I had to leave behind what was old, as I have to do every day. I have to leave behind the old Brian, that I might be open, that I might enter into what is new. I love that. And here's what it means to be a Christian's brother and sisters, brothers and sisters, to be a Christian. What happens to all of eternity is that God loses himself. All, all of eternity, right? Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, it is no accident. Jesus surrendering his life and love to the Father through the Spirit, that is not an accident. It's the same thing he did for all of eternity. From all of eternity... Jesus pours out his life in love and gift of self to the Father. He loses himself. And from all of eternity, the Father loses himself and pours his life into the Son in perfect divine love. And the love between the Father and the Son, as you know, is so real 
so eternal, so divine, that it is the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian does not mean that I just believe something's true. To be a Christian means the day I was baptized, I was baptized into the person of Christ and into the relationship of the Holy Trinity. And to worship God means to enter into his life. It means that I have to stop pretending that I'm okay on my own. It means I have to stop clinging to things of this world as if those could make me happy and stable and make me have life. Right? God doesn't hold on to anything for himself. He loses himself knowing that the Father or the Son or the Spirit will continually pour their life into the other members. Right? Jesus, your whole life the life of the Trinity as it was manifested in this world, every moment of your existence was drawn from the love of the Father. And every moment of your existence was a pouring forth of your life back into the Father. You can do two things as a Christian or as a person. To worship the Trinity, brothers and sisters, means that we have to live differently. God is not just someone who has wealth and power and authority so that he can be stable. God's not that way. God is eternally dynamic. He is not a God that we can put on a leash like that pig. Sorry for the analogy. <laughs> we can't do that. God is not like you. He is not like you. He is infinitely beyond you. Every one of us was made to lose ourselves in a mystery far greater than ourselves. This is what the Trinity is. And I want to leave you today with a quote from Balthazar. Balthazar says this, he says, Finally, really to stand before God, before the inconceivability of the divine miracle that makes all things clear, that cannot be described, circumscribed, or constructed with categories of the, cata of the Stoic catalypsis. It's a Greek word, it means to seize. What Balthazar says is when we stand before God, we cannot grasp him. But rather, to stand before God already demands the categories of a loving surrender that entrusts oneself to the infinite and to the knowledge that one has been accepted and loved. Hear that last part one more time. To stand before God means not to grasp, but it demands the categories of a loving surrender. A surrender that entrusts oneself to the infinite and to the knowledge that one has been accepted and loved.
Lord Jesus, I don't want to pretend to understand the mystery of the Trinity anymore. Lord, I don't want to make you into my image and my likeness. Jesus, give me the grace to surrender to the eternal beauty of the divine mystery. Lord, may I surrender. May I bow before that mystery. May I one day be received into its fullness in the knowledge that I have already been loved and accepted by the divine mystery.